This is the WTF Bach Podcast. This is a bonus episode. This is a bonus episode. Bonus episode. Bonus episode of the WTF Bach Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Evan here. This is the last bonus episode before getting back to the analysis of the Art of Fugue. I promise the next episode will be right back in with the Eighth Fugue. I hesitated when putting out this episode because the more I looked into this book, the more I started doing my research, the more I became aware that this book that I'm debunking isn't even worth taking apart. It's just too filled with holes. And while initially it looked like I was going into a somewhat worthy fight, I soon realized I was quickly beating up a kitten. And I remembered the piece of advice that my teacher gave me. He said, I don't want to give you advice, but if I had to give you one piece of advice, it would be don't get upset at the general ignorance of people. But because I spent so much time on this and I've been ramping up to it in the few previous episodes, I will let it loose and hope that above all, it demonstrates not what a weak piece of Bach writing this book is, but how to recognize weak writing on Bach, how to properly defend against misinformation about Bach, and even how to shed light on a particular methodology with which you, the listener, can maybe even carry over into your own field. This episode is taking down a book called Evening in the Palace of Reason, and the author is James Gaines, and it was published by HarperCollins in 2005. Right away, I don't mean to insult Mr. Gaines in any way. A friend of mine who did similar work, which is essentially journalism, put it to me this way. He said, look, your boss gives you an assignment. He says, go out and write about sailing. And suddenly you got to become a sailing expert. And so you see, the problem is that Mr. Gaines was asked to write this book. He says so himself. But with such dense subject matter, Bach, something that people devote their lives to, you can hardly expect to add anything to the field that hasn't carefully been laid out by the experts. It's obvious that Mr. Gaines is someone who does journalism. He spent his career writing for time, life, and people magazines. He is not a box scholar. The first thing is that when you're an expert in a particular area, you develop what I call a BS radar. BS, of course, standing for box scholarship. And I'm sure you've all had that experience in your particular field. Someone who hasn't spent as much time doing what you do starts talking about what you do and beep, 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 your BS radar starts going off. So for example, a few years back, a musician asked me, what do you think about the new research coming out that Bach's wife wrote the cello suites? Well, immediately I'm beep, 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 the BS radar is going off. I don't even have to look into this to know that such a claim is just a publicity stunt. Or once after playing a concert in Italy, one of the audience members asked me if I had ever read Anna Magdalena Bach's autobiography. Biography? I corrected it. No, no, autobiography, she said. It's a beautiful book. She talks about how she walked into the church the first time she heard Bach playing the organ, and, and meanwhile I'm sitting there thinking, beep, 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 the radar's going off again. It turns out, of course, that this particular book in question was written in 1925 by someone named Esther Maynell, and it's called The Little Chronicle of Anna Magdalena Bach. It's, of course, fiction. And I also have to say that nothing is sacred, not even classical music. I'd hate to break it to you folks, but there are tabloids. Yes, there are classical music tabloids. Last.fm, for example, publishes bogus articles about Beethoven and Mozart with frequency, with frequency. To say nothing else of the other things these companies do, The Guardian publishes classical music tabloids because we love to spin people from other eras into the areas of our current fascinations, but you have to be aware of what that really is. I want to start with an example of bogus Bach scholarship. It is an article published by the National Geographic in 2019. The article is entitled, How Bach's Anatomy May Have Handed Him Greatness. Already beep, 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 before I read the article. But then the article in 173 words. 
talks about someone, not a Bach scholar, who recently measured the proportions of a 19th century photograph of Bach's skeleton. This someone then, after looking carefully at the hands of the skeleton, measured the fingers in relationship to the whole body and concluded that Bach could reach a perfect 12th on the keyboard. Okay, so hopefully you too are beep, 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 beep. This is the National Geographic, folks. So I wrote a letter to the editor, dated 16th of August, 2019, the editor, National Geographic, subject, your article concerning Bach's skeleton. Dear editor, I'm a longtime reader of the National Geographic and was struck by your article entitled How Bach's Anatomy May Have Handed Him Greatness. As a Bach player and scholar, I must confess that this article has every sign of bad scholarship and must be reduced to poor speculation for the following reasons. 1. It is well known within the Bach community that the skeleton exhumed in the 19th century is most likely not his. At best, we possess his skull. This article, among others, overseen by Tom Koopman, one prominent Bach scholar and performer, goes into great detail to support this. Then a link. 2. The size of one's hands does not determine the reach. What determines the reach is the flexibility. I have met people with larger hands who cannot reach what I can reach on the keyboard. I have also studied with players with smaller hands with enormous reaches. The most important fact, however, like all scholarship on Bach, must stem from the music. 3. A careful study of all his keyboard music for organ, harpsichord, and clavichord shows that his reach rarely exceeds the interval of a ninth, and never exceeds that of a tenth. I find it imperative to let you know about your article, as there is an enormous amount of poor scholarship on Bach. The trend is to speculate, for Bach's is such a fascinating body of work, but scholars and institutions such as the Bach Archive in Leipzig work hard to straighten the record, and National Geographic too should know this. Sincerely yours, Evan Shinners. To which they responded, Dear Mr. Shinners. I'm kidding, of course, they did not respond. I will now give you the briefest of summaries of the work A Musical Offering by Bach, the history of it, and the theory that this book by Mr. Gaines is trying to put forward. So in 1747, Bach wrote a work called A Musical Offering, which is a collection of two fugues, ten canons, and a trio sonata. Earlier in that year, in 1747, the king, King Frederick, had invited Bach to the palace and had given him an improvisational challenge. He said, can you improvise upon this theme? He played for him a theme. Bach then improvised upon the theme in three voices. Frederick then said, can you do that in six voices? To which Bach responded, I would need to prepare a little. I can do it in six voices on a different theme. Then Bach played in six voices. A few other details follow. A couple months later, Bach writes a musical offering and dedicates it to King Frederick. Now, what Mr. Gaines is suggesting is that Frederick, in a mean-spirited way, was trying to humiliate Bach, was that Bach understood that his aesthetic of counterpoint was being pushed aside for the new, more gallant style that gave way to the classical style, and that when writing the musical offering back in Leipzig, Bach puts into the music many veiled insults, including moral warnings that if the king, who is, to quote Mr. Gaines, a bisexual misanthrope, does not change his ways, he's going to burn in hell. All in all, if that seems a little too unfair to Mr. Gaines, Mr. Gaines certainly thinks that Frederick and Bach are rivals, and he goes to many great lengths to support the fact that this is not a meeting of mutual respect, 
that this is not a meeting to see what the art of music is all about, but that this is really a rivalry. And so already my beep, 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 my radar is going off. So the first thing to be on the lookout for when trying to identify a piece of bad Bach scholarship is sweeping generalizations, sweeping statements about Bach's mind, Bach's aesthetic, Bach's contemporaries, Bach's time. And right in the beginning of the James Gaines book, we see this phrase. Nowhere were they more different though, speaking of Frederick and Bach, than their attitude toward music. Bach represented church music and especially the learned counterpoint of Canon and Fugue. Frederick and his generation were having nothing of that. They denigrated counterpoint as a vestige of an outworn aesthetic. Skipping a bit, Bach's cosmos was one in which the planets themselves played the ultimate harmony, a tenet that had been unquestioned since the sacred science of Pythagoras. Skipping a bit, Frederick despised music that, as he put it, smells of the church and called Bach's chorale specifically dumb stuff. Now, my radar is going off because I think immediately Bach represented church music and especially the learned counterpoint of Canon and Fugue. Well, this is a partial truth, but also Bach worked for the court in his earlier years, and so he also represented the court. But that's, ju that's just sort of the beginnings of my radar going off. How about Frederick and his generation were having none of that? They denigrated counterpoint. Well, did all of Frederick's contemporaries denigrate counterpoint? Again, we have another half-truth. Frederick's generation, true, was not writing counterpoint. They didn't prefer it, but they didn't denigrate it. If anything, composers of that era had the utmost respect for counterpoint. It just wasn't the style. In fact, a very specific musical example of King Frederick, the Sonata in C minor, number 190. By the way, this book completely lacks any specific references to the compositions of Frederick, which a true piece of scholarship would have. This sonata contains a movement, which is a two-voice fugue, which shows that Frederick doesn't denigrate counterpoint. He just doesn't write in counterpoint, but he respects it. I mean, he tried his hand at it. How about this sentence here? Bach's cosmos was one in which the planets themselves played the ultimate harmony. I've read a lot about this man. I have never, ever heard anyone talk about the cosmos themselves and the planets aligning. I mean, this, these are just things that are setting off my BS radar, but these are not things which immediately I know that are invalid based on the way that they appear on the page. Those things, however, are the lack of footnotes. Like as an academic, let's say, I would have to dismiss this because there are no footnotes. There are no footnotes in this huge passage that I read to you. This is something that you, when being a scholar, I'm sure you already know that's a bad sign. There are no... There, there are sources listed in this book, but modern Bach scholarship is so precise. You make one statement and you put a footnote. You make another statement, you put a footnote. You say, since A equals B, as demonstrated by this source here, and B equals C, as demonstrated by this source here, we can finally say A equals C. Go look at the new book by Christoph Wolf, for example. You'll see what I mean. It's intense. Almost every single sentence, every single sentence, has a footnote, especially when making a statement like Frederick called Bach's chorale specifically dumb stuff. That needs a footnote. The next thing to be weary of, or that should be setting off your radar, is when someone uses sources, but it seems that they're using the source to their advantage. So for example, Gaines quotes the newspaper account that was picked up of the meeting from May in 1747. He quotes it, and then he writes dot dot dot, and then in the next sentence he says the account is incomplete, and the blur of Baroque rhetoric somewhat obscures the story. Okay, now that's not necessarily right on the face, something that should be setting off your BS radar, but just out of curiosity, you should probably see the exact source that he is quoting. Because the account is not incomplete, 
He cuts off right there for reasons unknown the newspaper report, which then mentions that Bach gave an organ recital, which his majesty had the pleasure of hearing on the occasion of which he asked him to improvise yet another six-voice fugue. But this doesn't fit Gaines' narrative, so he omits it. Okay, so that's something you can do. You could always go to the exact source and make sure that the author is quoting it exactly and in full, by the way. But also, Gaines goes on to quote Arnold Schoenberg. He calls Schoenberg the foremost composer of counterpoint of the 20th century. Again, a sweeping statement that should set off your BS radar. But he says that Schoenberg marveled at the fact that the theme had been so cleverly contrived that it did not admit one single canonic imitation. In other words, the royal theme was constructed to be as resistant to counterpoint as possible. Now, those are two very different things. Admitting a canonic imitation, meaning lending itself to forming a canon, does not mean that it's resistant to counterpoint. There are plenty of Bach fugues that cannot be made canons. So that's another thing that can set your radar off when someone says, in other words. Make sure it's really other words of saying the same thing. Okay, going on with what Gaines says. Gaines talks now about how Frederick asked after Bach's three-voice improvisation to do it in six voices. He says, Knowing instantly that he had no hope of doing such a vastly more complex improvisation, he demurred with the observation that not every single subject is suitable for improvisation in six voices. He said that he would have to work it out on paper and send it to Frederick later. Let's pause. That, again, is a half-truth. He did demur. But the statement there, he said he would have to work it out on paper and send it to Frederick later. This is not true. Nowhere do we have that in the report, that Bach said that he would have to work it out and send it to Frederick later. Part of the problem with making such a statement like that is that it makes it seem as if a musical offering was fulfilling a certain promise that Bach had given the king, when really the musical offering came apropos of nothing, just Bach's own curiosity to see how far he could compose another monothematic work like the Art of Fugue. Still, Mr. Gaines goes on. Every musician, and especially the composers in the room, would have realized just how ridiculously demanding it was, but there was no other recorded instance in Bach's life when he had to concede such a defeat. And this was an exceedingly proud man, the aged, acknowledged master of both fugue and improvisation before an audience of fellow virtuosi, as well as his two oldest sons. Bach's embarrassment may have been the reason why he was invited to Frederick's court in the first place. This sentence, every musician, and especially the composers in the room. This is a statement here that shows really how ignorant Mr. Gaines is of 18th century music. Uh, there is no separation between musician and composer. Every musician was a composer in the room going on. There is no other recorded instance in Bach's life when he had to concede such a defeat. Does this really sound like a defeat to you? And then the following statement. This was an exceedingly proud man, the aged acknowledged master of both fugue and improvisation. Now look, that is a sign that this guy doesn't, he, he seems to know what he's talking about. He seems to know a little bit about Bach, but no one who really knows Bach would ever say he was an exceedingly proud man. Bach was far from proud. In fact, pride would have been a quality in people that Bach shied away from. Bach this man steeped, obviously, in the biblical teachings, the Lutheran tradition. This man, Bach, would have realized that, quote, pride goeth before a fall. Mr. Gaines goes on to talk about how Schoenberg, again, analyzed the subject, the royal theme given to Bach by Frederick, and says that it was probably composed with the help of Bach's son in order to trap Bach. Mr. Gaines then speaks about the sinister overtones, this implies. Now, I'm not so sure that someone trying to trap Bach is sinister, 
or if they're really trying to see, can the man do this? When trying to prop up this theory that C.P. Ebach was indeed trying to trap his father, Gain says this. More than once, Carl seemed to feel that his respect and affection for his father was in some measure unrequited, a sense of filial injury that often afflicts second sons. There would have been an Oedipal aspect to such a victory over Bach for Frederick as well. Again, such a sweeping statement is really in need of a footnote, but if we just look at the music, say, the Weltermaglevier Book II from the 1740s, the same decade as the musical offering, we see that it is Bach's grand summary of all styles of music, both old and new. This whole conception of Bach saying, I am a great artist, I stick to my style, I turn my nose up at this new gallant style is really a postmodern conception. No, Bach, the curious musician, the humble worker, would have said, I want to know everything about this new style. And he does. He composes music in the sonata form, even in the Well-Tempered Clavier. I ask you, is that not showing respect for his sons, composing in the style that he thought his sons preferred? Gaines goes on with quite a narrative. As his carriage rattled over the rutted roads from Potsdam back to Leipzig, Bach was already working out the puzzle Frederick had presented to him. Certainly he lost no time working on it once he was back in Leipzig. At his composing desk, in the southwest corner of the second floor of the St. Thomas School, the noise of the student dormitory barely muffled by a thin wall, and the ad hoc insulation of bookshelves heaped with music, he finished his musical offering to Frederick within a fortnight, turning the king's joke, if that's what it was, back upon him with all the force at his command. Now, uh, one thing that should be setting off your radars is that beautiful writing of Mr. Gaines. You know, real Bach scholars don't write like that. I'm not sure if that's where Bach's desk is. I'm not sure if it's facing this corner. I'm not sure if it's on that floor. But if it is, it certainly needs a footnote. But the one thing that you should look for is, how do we know that he completed it within a fortnight? You see, that newspaper article comes from May 11th, and the musical offering is dedicated July 7th. Does that mean that it was completed on May 20th in nine days? Does it mean that it was completed in a fortnight? Does it mean that it was completed in a month? Does it mean that it was completed on July 7th, a couple months later? But in any case, you can't just flippantly apply timestamps. This is a very exact thing, and you just can't throw caution to the wind for the sake of a narrative. So hopefully I've given everyone listening some red flags and now your BS radars are going beep, 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 and now you are prepared to do your own research. You want to figure out what really went on here. So where do you go? Well, you want to go to the source that is as close to the event as possible. You want to seek out the contemporary sources and examine those from a distance just to make sure that they too are not pushing forth a narrative. And lucky for us, since people devote their lives to doing this, this has already been done for us. There's a book called The New Bach Reader, which is a lovely little book that is simply every piece of writing by Bach or about Bach completed during or shortly after his life. This includes any letters Bach wrote, which are few, any receipts, for example, that we still have. It includes the first biography of Bach by Nicholas Forkel. So let's start with that. Let's start with Forkel. This is Forkel writing about Bach. His second son, Charles Philip Emanuel, entered the service of Frederick the Great in 1740. The reputation of the all-surpassing skill of John Sebastian was at this time so extended that the king often heard it mentioned and praised. This made him curious to hear and meet so great an artist. At first he distantly hinted to the son his wish that the father would one day come to Potsdam, but by degrees he began to ask him directly why his father did not come. The son could not avoid acquainting his father with these expressions of the king's. At first, however, he could not pay any attention to them because he was generally too much overwhelmed with business. But the king's expressions being repeated in several of his son's letters, he at length in 1747 prepared to take this journey in the company of his eldest son, Wilhelm Friedemann. 
At this time, the king used to have, every evening, a private concert in which he himself generally performed some concertos on the flute. One evening, just as he was getting his flute ready and his musicians were assembled, an officer brought him the written list of the strangers who had arrived. With his flute in hand, he ran over the list, but immediately turned to the assembled musicians and said, with a kind of agitation, Gentlemen, old Bach has come. The flute was now laid aside, and an old Bach, who had alighted at his son's lodgings, was immediately summoned to the palace. William Friedman, who accompanied his father, told me this story, and I must say that I still think with pleasure on the manner in which he related it. At that time, it was the fashion to make rather prolix compliments. The first appearance of J.S. Bach before so great a king, who did not even give him time to change his traveling dress for a black canter's gown, must necessarily be attended with many apologies. I will not here dwell on these apologies, but merely observe that in William Friedman's mouth they made a formal dialogue between the king and the apologist. But what is more important than this is that the king gave up his concert for the evening and invited Bach, then already called the Old Bach, to try his forte pianos, made by Silbermann, which stood in several rooms of the palace. The musicians went with him from room to room, and Bach was invited everywhere to try them and play unpremeditated compositions. After he had gone on for some time, he asked the king to give him a subject for a fugue in order to execute it immediately without any preparations. The king admired the learned manner in which his subject was thus executed extempore, and probably to see how far such art could be carried, expressed a wish to hear a fugue also with six obligato parts. But as not every subject is fit for such full harmony, Bach chose one himself and immediately executed it to the astonishment of all present in the same magnificent and learned manner as he had done that of the king. His majesty desired also to hear his performance on the organ. The next day, therefore, Bach was taken to all the organs in Potsdam, as he had before been to Silverman's forte pianos. After his return to Leipzig, he composed on the subject, which he had received from the king, in three and six parts, added several intricate pieces in strict canon on the subject, had it engraved under the title of Musikalisches Opfer, Musical Offering, and dedicated it to the inventor. I'm not going to say much about Forkel's biography of Bach. In my interview with Robert Hill, he mentions that you have to be careful when reading Forkel to note what particular agendas Forkel was also trying to put forward. But with phrases like, the king admired the learned manner, I'm not so sure that I'm getting this picture that Mr. Gaines is putting forward, even with not the best source, which is Forkel's biography. Okay, so let's just leave it at that and turn to another piece of contemporary writing, the recollection of Frederick himself as written down by Gottfried von Swieten in 1774, about 37 years after the meeting and about 24 years after Bach had died. Uh, Swieten is referring to the organist in Berlin, not J.S. Bach, but one of his sons. And Swieten says this, He, Frederick the Great, spoke to me, among other things, of music and of a great organist named Bach, who has been for a while in Berlin. This artist is endowed with a talent superior in depth of harmonic knowledge and power of execution to any I have heard or can imagine, while those who knew his father claim that he, in turn, was even greater. The king is of this opinion, and to prove it to me, he sang aloud a chromatic fugue subject that he had given this old Bach, who on the spot had made a fugue in four parts, then in five parts, and finally in eight parts. So right, that first organist that they're referring to is Bach's eldest son, Wilhelm Friedemann Bach. Let's note right off the bat there that Frederick is exaggerating uh, in Bach's favor that he improvised in four, then five, then, then eight parts. And now let's turn to another contemporary source. This is from Bach's obituary, which was prepared by his family shortly after Bach's death, three years after the meeting of Frederick the Great and Bach. 
In the year 1747, he made a journey to Berlin and on this occasion had the opportunity of being heard at Potsdam by His Majesty the King in Prussia. His Majesty himself played him a theme for a fugue, which he at once developed to the particular pleasure of the monarch on the pianoforte. Hereupon, His Majesty demanded to hear a fugue with six obligato voices, which command he also fulfilled to the astonishment of the king and the musicians there present using a theme of his own. After his return to Leipzig, he set down on paper a three-voiced and six-voiced so-called Richard Carr together with several intricate little pieces, all on the very theme that had been given to him by His Majesty, and this he dedicated, engraved on copper, to the king. And now finally I'm going to read you actually Bach's words himself to the king. This is the dedication page of the musical offering from Bach to the king. Musical offering to His Royal Majesty in Prussia, most submissively dedicated by Johann Sebastian Bach. Most gracious king, in deepest humility, I dedicate herewith to your majesty a musical offering, the noblest part of which derives from your majesty's own august hand. With awesome pleasure, I still remember the very special royal grace when, some time ago, during my visit in Potsdam, your majesty self deigned to play me a theme for a fugue upon the clavier, and at the same time charged me most graciously to carry it out in your majesty's most august presence. To obey your majesty's command was my most humble duty. I noticed very soon, however, that, for lack of necessary preparation, the execution of the task did not fare as well as such an excellent theme demanded. I resolved, therefore, and promptly pledged myself to work out this right royal theme more fully, and then make it known to the world. This resolve has now been carried out as well as possible, and it has none other than the irreproachable intent to glorify, if only in a small point, the fame of a monarch whose greatness and power, as in all the sciences of war and peace, so especially in music, everyone must admire and revere. I make myself bold to add this humble request. May your majesty deign to dignify the present modest labor with a gracious acceptance and continue to grant your majesty's most august royal grace to your majesty's most humble and obedient servant, the author, Leipzig, July 7th, 1747. So there's obviously a lot of obsequious language there, but that is, of course, how you talk to a king. And now after we've heard that source, we can all say with some level of authority that we've gathered almost every source written during or shortly after Bach's life about this work, or speaking more accurately, we have gathered every source that doesn't merely mention the existence of the work, but speaks of the origins of the story. Now, because Bach's life is one that is devoid of many anecdotes, one that is really not laid out in a romantic way or a body of work paved with letters to his father like Mozart or one full of emotional letters to a lover like Brahms, it's important to say that the musical offering is one of the few works, if not the singular work, where we can actually trace the origin of the composition to the day to the exact source. And it's for this reason that I feel like we really need to clarify what actually happened with the musical offering, because there is a story with this work. And if you get the story wrong, you're apt to see all of Bach's work in a less favorable light. It's not like Mr. Gaines didn't read these sources. Obviously he did. It's just the words that he put into Bach's mouth. This is an era where we love drama. We love stories of the hero. We love stories of overcoming authority. We want to see this humble man, Bach, this lowly peasant musician draped in a cantor's cloth, show this arrogant King Frederick who the real master is. But sadly, or actually gladly, there exists no such narrative. This is us placing our cinematic imprint what is more, 
This book suggests that Bach himself was subject to petty emotions. Bach himself saw himself on the level of a king. He was insulted. He was made furious. He sought revenge and sought to point out the immorality of a king. Well, this is maybe what you expect when writing a script, when every film today about a composer attempts to be a film like Amadeus, but it's so far from the truth. The reality is that Bach was about the most non-romantic figure you could ever imagine. Let me give a quote from Mr. Christoph Wolf here in his new book on Bach. In this respect, as in so many others, Bach was a thoroughly unromantic figure. He carried out any resolve of his as well as possible, and never shrank, as Johann Philipp Kernberger relates, from the impossible. But every bit of evidence that comes down to us from his own time makes it clear that he looked upon himself primarily as a capable worker, conscientiously attending to his duties. Surely his unpretentious absorption in his tasks helped give the works the quality that have made them transcend his time and station. Think, just think, if you were king, if you were king, and you had the greatest solver of puzzles in the nation at your disposal, would you not give him the most difficult puzzle to solve? And this isn't to humiliate if he can't do it, but to test the limits of the mind which you hold in such high regard. If the puzzle is unsolvable, then king and puzzle solver stand in awe of the art of the puzzle. And that little quote from the Forkel biography there, quote, probably to see how far such art could be carried. This is a reference to when Frederick asked Bach if he could do it in six voices. And I believe that was Frederick's purpose, probably to see how far such art could be carried, not to humiliate, because using a certain logic, we can see that there's really no way this could be meant as a humiliation. Let's, let's say Bach did do it in six voices, and on the very same subject and on the spot, then what is Frederick going to do? Is the king going to concede defeat or is he going to say now, well, can you do it in nine voices? And on and on until he reaches, what, victory? I don't think so. That's not how art works. Can you think? of an era where the younger generation sought to insult the older one? Can you really imagine, say, and I apologize for these comparisons, but can you really imagine Coltrane having a contest with Louis Armstrong? And when Louis Armstrong plays in his old style, Coltrane feels as if he's bested Louis. Finally, Mr. Gaines needs to come up with some musical examples as to how Bach's musical offering was a veiled insult to Frederick. And he does so in one of the last chapters in the book. He quotes a musicologist named Eric Chafe, and he talks about these two canons from the musical offering, which have this Latin phrase attached to each of them. One is, as the notes get longer, so may the fortune increase, or as the notes increase, so may the fortune of the king. Another one saying, as the notes rise, so may the glory of the king. So we have this image here of notes getting longer and fortune getting bigger with one canon, and then another one, notes getting higher and glory getting higher of the king. Very clever on Bach's part. And Gaines quotes Eric Chafe saying that Eric Chafe was the first to point out both inscriptions sort oddly with their respective works. In the fourth, because this canon about the king's fortune is so relentlessly melancholy. In the fifth, because despite the fact that the canon is supposed to reflect the king's ascendant glory, the magic of it is that it does not seem to rise at all. Now, let's, let's listen to the music, okay? So let's, let's listen to the one that they are referring to as melancholy, relentlessly melancholy. Here's Carl Richter, a very notable Bach scholar and performer. <laughs> Thank you. 
So it doesn't quite seem melancholy to me, granted that there are a few melancholy arrangements or versions of this particular canon. There's really nothing in the music that suggests that it's melancholy. And even if it were melancholy, I mean, what, what does that say about the fortune of the king? That the fortune of the king is, is melancholy? I'm not exactly sure what the conclusion is there, what the jump that Gaines is making there. Uh, in fact, I would say that this particular canon has a lot of French dotted rhythms, which could be actually alluding to the Francophilic tastes of King Frederick. But now let's hear the one that both Gaines and Chafe, for whatever reason, say does not seem to rise, that the magic of this ascending glory of the king is that it seems to go nowhere. Let's have a listen to that canon.
okay, I don't think you really need to know music or to learn how to read music in order to know that that canon went up. Uh, one of the things that Gaines says is that if you simply repeat the canon, you will be where you started. That's sort of true in the way that if you count up from, you know, C and you repeat the canon enough times that you'll be again at C, but you're not exactly where you started. You're simply higher on the keyboard. I don't understand this point. You play a C major scale, you start at C, you end at C. Yeah, you're at C, but one C is higher than the other. What are you getting at here, Gaines? So let's just hear where that canon started and where that canon finished. The canon started here. And the canon finished here. We could see it clearly goes up, no questions asked. That recording is, by the way, an anonymous recording. It's on YouTube, but I don't know who the performers are, so I apologize. And also, if you do know who the performers are, please tell me. Right, so as you can see, when we actually talk about the music itself, the music, Mr. Gaines's position is rapidly collapsing. But if I were to have to say support this idea that Bach was insulting the king with this music and in these canons, specifically with the Latin dedication, I would sort of be at a loss to do so with the theme going upwards because that is a very cleverly conceived ascending perpetual canon. But the one about the fortunes of the king increasing, you see what you have here is you have one line of music which needs to be augmented twice as long. And it seems that most of the solutions to this canon are only found when you augment the first half of that melody. So that right there might say, if I'm trying to support this hypothesis that this was an insult, was that Bach says, may your fortune increase, but only may half of it increase. But even to that, I have my own rebuttal, which is that the same thing happens in the Art of Fugue. The same thing happens in the Art of Fugue when he makes his own canon in augmentation. He only lends the first half of that melody to that which can be augmented. Now, the second refutation I have to that is actually Leonhardt, Gustav Leonhardt, the man himself, has found a solution in which the entire phrase can be augmented. So right there you've got the fact that it occurs in the artifugue in the same way, and Leonhardt finding the entire phrase in an augmented form. I'd say that that's good enough to shoot down even my own theory coming up from a musical perspective. And the last musical thing that Mr. Gaines speaks about is the sonata. Within the musical offering there is a trio sonata for flute, for the royal instrument, for violin, and for the harpsichord. Gaines goes on at length talking about how it is a, quote, sonata de chiesa. Now, you see, the problem with this is though, though Mr. Gaines is right in calling this a sonata de chiesa, which means a church sonata, which obviously Mr. Gaines reads into the fact that this is a church sonata and Bach is trying to throw church, throw high morals at King Frederick. He's trying to say, repent, repent, you wicked bisexual sinner. It's not exactly clear if Bach himself would have considered this a sonata de chiesa. It's not exactly clear when that term, sonata de chiesa, enters the musical vocabulary. In fact, if we look at the Grove Dictionary of Music, it says that the label de chiesa appears in only about 20% of the volumes containing abstract instrumental works printed between 1650 and 1689. Even Corelli's opuses 1 and 3 are called simply sonata. Now, Bach knew these opuses by Corelli. They would have served him as the model for the sonata that's slow, fast, slow, fast. So you see the problem with calling it a sonata de chiesa is that we're not even sure if Bach was familiar with this term. So therefore, what Gaines is doing is applying a term that came most likely later on in the history of music. You apply that term to what is going on here and saying, ah, you see Bach wrote a church sonata, a church sonata for this moralist king. 
he's trying to evangelize him, therefore. And if we hear someone who knows what he's talking about, talking about this sonata structure, the slow-fast, slow-fast structure of the trio sonata versus the then-preferred fast-slow-fast Christoph Wolf has this to say. Bach's preferred sequence of sonata movements is the four-movement cycle, slow-fast, slow-fast, a type that prevails throughout his repertoire of sonatas for violin, flute, and viola da gamba, and in the trio sonatas as well. He still favored it when writing his last work in this category, the sonata in the musical offering. Even though the more fashionable sonata type then favored at the Prussian court consisted of three movements, fast, slow, fast. So right there, that's Mr. Christoph Wolf, and he's not calling it a sonata de chiesa, he's calling it a four-movement sonata form. He's very careful about applying such terminology like that. So the moral of the story there is obviously understand your terminology, understand the origin of the term you're using, and be wary about analyzing music from a certain century with terminology from a different century. Finally, with Mr. Gaines, there's a lot of talk about how the German dedication of the musical offering would have been an insult to the French-speaking king. It's quite a fantastic leap to make that assumption. In fact, it's quite a careless leap, really because there could be so many more explanations as to why this dedication is in German. Was Bach not comfortable enough with his French? Was it that perhaps Bach felt that he spoke more from his heart when he spoke German? Was it that perhaps the circulation of such a work in Germany would have found favor among the more German-speaking public? There are so many other ideas that we can come up with when trying to put these facts together. Even though this never crossed my mind when playing this music, that this could have been a veiled insult, once I got this idea into my head, I started looking for ideas, and I thought, maybe there's this one. Maybe in the second movement of the trio sonata, where the royal theme starts appearing. It appears in the violin twice. It appears in the harpsichord twice. But it appears in the flute only once. And I thought, hmm, maybe that's something. But then I started even thinking, how much more awesome is that? that it only appears once in the flute. Then I started looking at the structure. Where exactly in the movement does that theme appear in the flute? Well, that theme in the flute happens to appear at almost precisely the golden section. So if Frederick were looking at this music, and Frederick was a man involved in mathematics and the sciences, if he had seen this, he would have further appreciated it. Finally, some writing just from Mr. Wolf. As a variegated assemblage of two keyboard fugues, a chamber sonata, and ten canons, the musical offering has no equivalent among the composer's monothematic works of the 1740s. Its contents were carefully put together as a formal offering, a gift most appropriate for its musically proficient royal recipient, and also truly worthy of its resourceful and imaginative creator. The work is conceived as a kind of self-portrait of a musician's musician, one equally competent as a keyboard virtuoso, a capellmeister, and a masterful composer in all styles, including the most elaborate and erudite counterpoint. The trio sonata was meant as a special contribution by the Saxon capellmeister to the chamber repertoire of the acclaimed Prussian court ensemble, which included his own son and several former students. Particularly in the sonata's slow movements, Bach paid homage to the king's preferred style of delicate sensitivity, and he certainly demonstrated the suitability of the royal theme for such mannerist treatment, even if in contrapuntal disguise. Finally, the canons were intended to appeal to the intellectual side of the philosopher king. Bach most likely overestimated the ruler's taste for complex musical constructions. Still, the king might have well enjoyed the allegorical references attached to the augmentation canon number four. As the note values increase, so may the fortune of the king, and to the modulatory canon number five. As the modulation moves upwards, so may the king's glory. That's what Mr. Wolf, Mr. Christoph Wolf, has to say about Bach's musical offering. Finally, just one last little passage that Mr. Gaines writes here at the end of his book. He writes a little postlude where he says how I came to write this book. And he says simply this, 
I wrote this book because I've always loved Bach's music and I wanted to know the man who made it. I was also drawn to investigate the issue of reason versus faith, one that was posed in high relief by the confrontation of Bach and Frederick the Great and the music that resulted from their meeting. I don't pretend to have arrived at a definite answer, but I do think the book asserts a provocative refinement of the question, if there were no place in this world for belief and no such thing as transcendence, how could we react as we do to the music of Bach? Or to put it another way, if this is all there is, how could there have been a Bach? Well, that right there, my friends, is the fine print on this book. That's not how you end a piece of scholarship. That's not how you end an academic paper. You don't say, I don't pretend to have actually found the truth, but I'm just asking if God exists. That's really like terms and conditions may apply. The thing about this book is that it's a book. People are more apt to believe a book. If this were a film, people would say, yeah, it's a movie. We don't necessarily have to believe it. But because this is a book, you have a lot of people reading this book who really believe this is what happened. Okay, I've spent way too much time now doing something which might not have needed to be done, but uh, just one final note here. Uh, a quick story about how I found this book by Mr. Gaines. Like I said, I was playing the musical offering and I got feedback from listeners. I started getting articles and I read through them and I couldn't believe what I was reading. Here I was who had just spent the better part of a few months working on this music and never once did such a narrative cross my mind. To me, this was, as represented by the music, simply one of the most incredible musical tributes in history. And it was no more a counterattack in any way than it was an homage to music itself. I started reading these articles and while most of them had no sources, a few of them did and their sources were other articles with no sources or the Gaines book itself. And it all started when I read the following. James Gaines has suggested there are church music melodies and my immediate thought was, WTF is James Gaines. You don't suggest that there are church melodies, by the way. You prove it, you find the church melody, find it in the music and you publish it. That's how Bach research is done. So you see what you have here, and this is what's very disturbing to me, is you have a group of articles circling themselves. You have a circle of pseudo-intellect that feels that they're saying something true because they're all backed up by other sources, which in turn are backed up by other sources, but blah, blah, blah. When you take the needle into the center and figure out what's going on, you have it all revolving around this book, which is not a piece of scholarship, it's a novel. The insinuation of which is that this must happen in every other area of knowledge, unfortunately. And for this reason, I'm so glad that my expertise is really in this area, Bach, a man that, for whatever it's worth, most of the world doesn't really care about. So when bad scholarship on this man hits the shelf, it doesn't really start changing people's lives. But imagine the same vicious circle in a field that does affect people's lives. It should really inspire you to search for the truth. Here, Mr. Gaines has arrived at what we can call a 90% truth. And that's also very disturbing because most of what he says in this book is true. But right when it comes down to it, when it comes right down to it, when you need to be the most discerning about what happened, when you need to be the most accurate and the most careful about drawing a conclusion about the music or the character of the genius, Mr. Gaines throws caution to the wind and writes essentially a work of fiction. My final thought is this. Look, Gaines has taken Bach and he's put Bach into a situation to which we can relate. Faith versus reason, the individual versus the king, tradition versus novelty. He's turned Bach into a character we can understand. But in turn, he has brought Bach down to a lower level. In doing so, he has really reduced Bach. The psychology of Bach is ultimately far too complicated, too complex, too different from our time to understand. The music is, of course, timeless, but inserting a narrative such as the one that Mr. Gaines has written, really reduces so great a mind. And what we should be doing is not bringing Bach down to our level, but elevating ourselves to Bach's level. So I hope you guys have 
enjoyed this, got something out of it. Thanks very much. This is your mind. This blown is your mind. By WTF. By WTF. By WTF. By WTF. Blows your mind. Mind. Blown. Mind. WTF. Bach.